All right, as we come to hear God's Word, let's bow and let's pray once more. Father, we ask now that you'd humble us to hear your Word, to receive your Word. We pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would change us and shape us and transform us this morning. We pray you'd strengthen your people that are here this morning. And for those who do not yet know you who are here, Lord, we pray you'd open up their eyes to see the beauty of your son Jesus, the glory of Christ, and the the need to believe in him for the forgiveness of sins, for everlasting life. Lord, pray you change us by what we hear this morning. Lord, help me to preach faithfully and joyfully. Lord, pray you stir up my affections as I preach and remind me the truth of Christ and the joy that there is in knowing him. I thank you for the privilege to preach your word. Pray you'd use this time this morning to build us all up In the name of Jesus, in his name we pray, amen. What does it look like to wait for the Lord? I mean, that could be a little bit of a a cliche in Christian circles. Sometimes we're waiting on things even that God hasn't necessarily promised. What does it look like, though, to wait for the Lord? Well, first off, you have to understand what it means to wait. We live in a society that does not like to wait. We are impatient. We figure out ways to not have to wait. In fact, our impatience, it doesn't typically take that long in a day to reveal the impatience within us. Just get out in the Charlotte rush hour morning traffic. That traffic doesn't cause us to be impatient. It reveals our impatience. We don't like to wait. We don't like the drivers around us and how they drive. We don't like Independence Boulevard in the morning. And technology is designed to keep us from waiting. And I love this. I love it that we just had a new Chipotle open down the street, and I was made aware of something new called the Chipotle Lane. And it is a lane that you drive through, and you order your Chipotle bowl on your app, and you drive through that lane, and I have done it often here recently, and I tell you what, I pull in, I wait no less than 30 seconds for my food. It's awesome. I love that. Right? It just reveals we, we like things fast. We want things right now. But what happens when we don't get what we want when we want. And how often does our impatience reveal a lack of faith in God and His promises? You see, waiting is a posture that Christians are called to assume. Indeed, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to assume. You see, a large part of the Christian life is waiting, waiting for God to fulfill His promises. That means that we look to God's Word, we see what He's promised in Jesus, and most specifically, we're waiting for the return of Jesus. But there's lots of other things that He's promised us. Not, not everything. He didn't promise you that job you applied for. He didn't promise you that house that you're putting a bid on. He didn't promise you'd reach a marital status or family status by a certain age. It's good to want those things. He did promise, though, in all those things, He'll give us wisdom. And therefore, we often wait for wisdom. We wait for His direction. We wait for His help. But make no mistake, when I say wait, the Christian life is not passive. There is an active posture of waiting for the Lord, an active posture of worshiping and obeying and anticipating, hopefully looking forward to, eagerly awaiting God's fulfillment of His promises to His people in Jesus. This morning in Luke chapter 2, we see what it looks like to wait for the Lord. Turn with me if you haven't already done so to Luke chapter 2. 
I'd love for each of you to open up a copy of the Bible. If you don't have one with you, take that Bible that's right in front of you in the pew rack. Take that Bible, open it up to page 857. That's where we're going to be this morning, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21, page 857. And if you've come this morning, you don't own a Bible, we want to give that Bible to you. Use it this morning. Take it home. Read it. If you want to read or get connected to someone at this church to read the Bible, see me at this door afterwards or any of our pastors, any of our members around you. Talk to them about what it would look like to, to learn more about who God is and Christ by reading the Bible. And we heard this passage read earlier, so we're going to jump right in. And I want to give you the main idea of the message this morning. If you're taking notes, you can write this main idea down, even in your new ESV Scripture Journal. Good place. Take notes. As you wait for the Lord, look to Christ and walk in obedience and hopeful devotion. As you wait for the Lord, look to Christ and walk in obedience and hopeful devotion. Now we're back in the New Testament book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. We've had a little bit of time away. I think it's been about 34 days since we were last in Luke on Christmas Eve. Interestingly enough, this passage picks up 40 days after Jesus was born, right? So we're kind of on track chronologically. Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. He also wrote a second volume, the book of Acts, second longest book content-wise in the New Testament. Uh, we've we've ta- thought about this before, but Luke wrote 27.5% of the New Testament. So in other words, to know the New Testament is to know Luke and what he wrote. Now, this New Testament book, it's a gospel. And that word gospel, it means good news. So we've got the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Mark and Luke and and John. And I want to be clear that that a gospel is different than a biography. I even heard, I learned back in seminary, one of my professors said, the gospel is almost like its own genre in and of itself. You see, the point is not to give us all the details of the life of Jesus and tell us all these stories. The point of the gospel is to proclaim the good news of Jesus, who he is, the Son of God, what he came to do, lay his life down, die on the cross as a payment for sin, rise again from the dead. So we've got details about the life of Jesus, but the point of the gospel is to quickly make its way to the cross and the empty tomb. And the point of the gospel is that you would repent and believe in Jesus, that you'd have a certain response, that we wouldn't just learn interesting facts about Jesus, but rather that we'd see who he is as the Son of God and what he came to do to die and pay for sin, that you might find comfort and life and forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, Luke chapter 2, it moves very quickly. Most recently, back around Christmas, we were at the birth of Jesus, and then today we pick up eight days after his birth, and then it fast-forwards very quickly to when he was 12 years old. Then we get to Luke chapter 3, and it fast-forwards another 18 years. So there's not a lot that we have about the life of Jesus when he was little, except for what we see right here in Luke chapter 2, which tells us some pretty important details we need to pay attention to in Luke chapter 2. The point of the gospel of Luke to reveal who Jesus is and what he came to do. And as we look to Jesus, and hopefully in this time in the gospel of Luke, that the goal of this gospel might be seen in your life, that you might rejoice in Christ, that if you don't know him yet, I pray that during this study in Luke that you come to know Jesus. And if you're a Christian here this morning, I pray for each of us that we're encouraged in our faith this morning, 
that we're pointed to Jesus, who He is for us, what He's done for us, the goodness of God to us, that we'd look back at the cross and the empty tomb every Sunday morning and then look forward in hope and anticipation of what is sure to come when Jesus returns to earth. May the Lord use this time in Luke to encourage us in our faith, that we'd find hope and comfort in Jesus, that we would see that our life is held together by Christ alone, and that therefore we would be strengthened today to wait for the Lord. Well, Luke chapter 2, we see a group that was waiting for Jesus. As we make our way through this passage, I want us to consider three postures of waiting. We saw it there in our main idea, but we're going to break our main idea down into three points. This first posture is in verses 21 through 24. Verses 21 through 24. What we see there is a posture of watchful obedience. A posture of watchful obedience. Now, Joseph and Mary, they were faithful parents. They were seeking to honor God and obey his law with their firstborn son that God had given to them. And we see here in verse 21 that in obedience to the Old Testament law, on the eighth day after Jesus was born, they had him circumcised. His foreskin cut away from his body, receiving the sign of God's covenant with Abraham. And this circumcision, it marked Jesus off not only as belonging to the nation of Israel, but belonging to God identifying with the people of God there in Israel. Now, when a baby was circumcised, they would also receive their name. That was the ceremony on the eighth day. And we've already seen this with John the Baptist, that it was the custom back in that day, firstborn son, you got named Junior after dad, right? You took his name. Well, the difference with John the Baptist and Jesus is that God revealed what their name would be, revealed that through an angel. And Mary and Joseph had both heard from an angel, this baby was to be named Jesus. The Hebrew name Yeshua, that's Jesus. It means Jehovah saves. That's what his name means. The Lord saves. In his very name, it reveals who he is. He's the Savior. What he came to do. He came to die, to forgive, to save, to redeem sinners, to bring the lost to God who created us. Think about just his very name. When we pray in the name of Jesus as a Christian, We're professing he's our savior. He's the only one, the only person in whom there is salvation, the only way to God, the only way to be forgiven of your sins, the only way to be counted righteous before the God who created you is found in Jesus. Now, the obedience of Joseph and Mary, it's seen again starting at verse 22, as they made their way from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the holy holy city where the, the temple was located. And Jerusalem was the center of worship for the people of God. Now consider the scene here. Jesus, the one who is truly God and truly man, the presence of God fully dwelling in Jesus, made his way to the temple. You know what was so special about the temple in Jerusalem? It's where God's presence dwelled on earth. God is omnipresent, but his presence was manifest in a very special way to dwell among his people Israel there, whom he was in covenant relationship with, there in the temple. The temple was the intersection of heaven and earth. And think about this. Jesus was also the intersection of heaven and earth. 
The temple was a place that was that intersection. Jesus was the person that was that intersection, the God-man. God became flesh and dwelled in a place, or excuse me, in a person in Jesus, right there next to the place where he dwelled in the temple. I love that picture in Luke. Now, Joseph and Mary, they went to Jerusalem out of obedience to God in keeping with the law of Moses. And two ceremonies took place there when they went to the temple. Number one, the purification of the mother. And number two, the presentation of the child. That's why they were going. That's what we read about in verses 22 through 24. We see here Joseph and Mary traveled to Jerusalem to present Jesus to the Lord. And in verse 23, you see part of the Old Testament law quoted there. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now, God told Moses back in Exodus chapter 13, verse 2, that the firstborn, the firstborn son was to be consecrated, set apart to the Lord. That was in line, keeping the God's right to every firstborn son in Israel, dating all the way back to the Passover. That firstborn son will be presented to the Lord there at the temple. And then the child was redeemed with a sacrifice and kind of given back to the parents for the parents to raise that little boy. Now, before Jesus could be presented, though, Mary needed to be ceremonially purified and therefore a sacrifice offered. Now, this purification for the mother upon giving birth was part of the Old Testament cleanliness laws there, the Mosaic law. And you can read about that in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Prescribed there in Leviticus chapter 12 was a ceremonial purification for a mother. Forty days after giving birth to a baby boy, that mother would bring that baby boy with a sacrifice to the priest there in the temple in Jerusalem. We read here, the sacrifice was two turtle doves or, or two young pigeons that were offered for Mary's purification. Now, if you had money, you'd bring a lamb, but the poor were permitted to bring something less. And we see here that Joseph and Mary, young, newlyweds, first child, didn't have a lot of money. They brought two pigeons, a sacrifice acceptable to God. Now, these sacrifices, they were made acknowledging that the child that the mother had just delivered was sinful. In sin, my mother conceived me. And so a mother was to be purified. You see, people are guilty of sin from the moment of conception. We thought about that last Sunday night when we heard from Joel Ingstrom in our Sunday evening service. And therefore, a sacrifice was made for sin here as part of their rituals. Every human being was born in a state of sin except for one, Jesus. Jesus was the sinless Savior. He never sinned. He wasn't born with a condition of sin. He was the, the God-man. So you may wonder, well, then why wasn't Mary like, exempt from this sacrifice? So Jesus wasn't sinful. She had already learned that, that she, was, uh, uh, she had conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why did Mary then go forward with this? Shouldn't she be exempt? Well, no, out of obedience to God, she kept the law. She kept the law out of obedience to God. And we see something here that those who wait for God's promises have a posture of obedience. We learn something from the life of Mary and Joseph. They received promises from God directly spoken to them by an angel of the Lord. And they didn't quite understand all that was going to take place. We see a number of times Mary's 
treasuring up in her heart. She must be even in this particular situation recounting to Luke. It's believed that he actually went to interview Mary to write this particular gospel. She treasured things up in the moment, and later, after the death and resurrection of Jesus and his appearing, these things started to make sense that she had heard. She had faith in Jesus. But we learn here those who wait for God's promises have a posture of obedience. Those who believe God's promises will watch and wait and obey God's Word. Oh, brother and sister in the Lord, how concerned were you this past week with obeying God's Word? You know, we give a lot of time as Christians to sitting under the preaching and teaching of God's Word. We dedicate Sunday, the the Lord's Day, the, the day that Jesus got from the dead, to sitting under the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And what true knowledge looks like is that we learn and we grow in our knowledge so that we can grow in worship and obedience to God. You see, Joseph and Mary knew God's law. They've been taught God's law. They knew what they were supposed to do eight days after Jesus was born and they obeyed. They knew they were to make this trip to Jerusalem to present him and for her to be purified. They knew God's word and they obeyed. And so it is the posture for every Christian. Commit yourself, Christian, in 2024 to learning God's Word, that you might grow in obeying God's Word. Start on Sunday mornings. Extend that through your personal devotion to the Lord. We're going to have a time on February 4th, the first Sunday evening in February, to think about spiritual disciplines. Pastor Jonathan is going to give us a special message that evening about persevering and the spiritual disciplines. And you know what spiritual disciplines are for? For godliness. To grow in Christ-like character. OBC, let's be those who pray that we learn the word and grow in obeying the word. Now, while we learned something about Joseph and Mary here obeying God's law as they wait for the Lord to reveal his purposes, also consider we learned something about Jesus and his obedience to God from these verses. Jesus was born under the law. We thought about that in our last, one of our recent sermon series in Galatians. Galatians chapter 4 Verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus was born under the law and that he embraced submission to the law of Moses. And what we see here is remarkable. Even in the first days of his life on earth, out of the womb, He kept God's holy law. From the beginning of his life on earth until his death on the cross, Jesus showed that he was the only one capable of meeting God's demands in the law, proving that he was the the one that the law actually pointed to. The regulations, the rituals, the sacrifices, they all pointed to Jesus. Jesus was born under the law, but he was never under law sin. He came to offer perfect obedience to God on our behalf. That's good news because what it shows us is that Jesus came as a substitute. He did what you and I couldn't do. He perfectly obeyed God in all that he did. You see, Jesus, part of his condescension from heaven down to earth was to willingly place himself under the law and submit himself to God's law. And therefore, he showed himself to be the God-man, that he did what we did not do. He perfectly obeyed God. 
He perfectly honored God in all that he did. He kept every commandment, all that he did, all that he thought, all that he said was pleasing to God. And every single person he came into contact with, he was perfectly loving. He perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. You see, you and I fail to do that. In our sin, we reject God's loving authority over us. We want to live the way we want to live. We trust in our own wisdom. We're born as rebels against God and His will. We might think we're nice people, but the reality is we struggle with loving others. Our impatience shows that. The way we envy and covet others shows we struggle to love them. You see, every time we sin, as Christians, we can turn back to Jesus And we can be reminded of his perfect life here on earth and therefore his death on the cross. Both of them go together showing he was the only one qualified to be a substitute for us. He obeyed in our place where we have disobeyed and sinned against God. And he paid the penalty in our place, willingly laying his life down to die on the cross. He died on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. And for those who put their trust in Jesus, what you're saying is, I'm not trusting in my own obedience to please God. I'm trusting in the perfect obedience of Jesus. I'm not trusting in my own ability to try to somehow pay God back for the sin I've done against him, as if that's even possible. You see, we owe God a sin debt we can't possibly repay. But Jesus came as a substitute to pay for our sin in our place by dying on the cross. And he rose again on the third day that whoever would put their faith in Jesus Christ are forgiven of their sins and made right with God. Luke wants us to see this from the very beginning of the details of Jesus's life. You see, here in the beginning of Luke's gospel, baby Jesus presented to the Lord with a sacrifice of redemption. Fast forward to the end of Luke's gospel. We'll get there hopefully. Jesus lays his life down as the very sacrifice for sin. We see a second posture of waiting here in verses 25 through 39. Second posture, a posture of hopeful devotion. A posture of hopeful devotion. Now this trip to Jerusalem to present Jesus at the temple, it's the occasion that God uses to begin spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ there in Jerusalem. We see some of the first evangelists waiting for Jesus here in the temple courts. In fact, first off, we see two people who were waiting in the temple, ready to receive Jesus, Simeon and Anna. They were waiting. They were hoping in God's promises. They knew God's promised salvation. They were hoping and waiting for the Messiah, for God's promised salvation to come. And they end up becoming two witnesses of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Two of the first evangelists. And as we look at their stories recorded here, we learn something about a posture of hopeful devotion that waits for the Lord. The first witness is Simeon. Now, we don't know a lot about Simeon. You know, who is Simeon? What does he do there in the temple? Like, was he a priest? We're not really sure. Luke doesn't give us the details of who Simeon was and his role, but Luke tells us who Simeon was and his character, his reputation. He was righteous and devout. He was a godly man devoted to the Lord. Simeon's godly character was seen in his posture of hopeful devotion. He was waiting for God's promises to be revealed in Jesus. 
Now, now waiting for God and His promises and, and walking in righteousness, those things go together. You want to know how you're waiting for God? You're walking in righteousness and what God says is right. You're walking according to His Word. We read in verse 25 that specifically Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel or, or the comfort of Israel a comfort that comes from God's salvation, a comfort that comes from the Messiah. So simply put, Simeon was waiting for the Messiah. We also see that the Holy Spirit was upon him, which has the sense here that the Holy Spirit was continually upon him. In a time in redemptive history, which had not yet come, when the Holy Spirit would dwell every believer, we see that in Acts chapter 2. Luke's not there yet. He's here with Simeon. He wants us to understand the Holy Spirit was continually upon Simeon, qualifying him to be a witness of what we're about to read. We read in verse 26, previously the Holy Spirit had revealed to him, before you die, you will see the Lord's Christ. Christ, Greek title for Messiah. Before you die, you will see, visibly see, he will be there in front of you. That's the promise from the Holy Spirit that Simeon had been given. And notice that Simeon believed God, and he was waiting for the Messiah. This is what waiting looks like. You, you believe God's promises, and you watch, and you eagerly await God to fulfill his promises. That's the life of every Christian. You believe God's promises, and you're waiting on him. Now, God made this promise to Simeon by the Holy Spirit, and the promise is fulfilled there in verse 27. The Holy Spirit directed Simeon's steps, led him one day to cross paths with Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus, the Messiah, there in the temple complex. And he took baby Jesus and held him in his arms. I don't know what Mary was thinking in that moment. Some guy grabs her baby, holds him in his arms. How did Simeon know that this was his baby? Well, the Holy Spirit revealed to him, you know, there's not a Christmas song called Simeon, did you know? But, but he knew, right? The, the Holy Spirit revealed that to him. He knew. Yes, Simeon did know that this baby boy was the one sent to be a revelation to the nations of the light of God. The Spirit of God revealed it to him. And what Simeon was waiting for, he received in Christ. Now, we don't know how long Simeon had been waiting but imagine Simeon prior to this day. Imagine him going to bed at night thinking, all right, this didn't happen today. Could tomorrow be the day? I didn't meet Jesus today. The Holy Spirit promised me I'm not going to die until I see the Lord's Christ. I'm still alive. I'm breathing. I'm going to bed. Will tomorrow be the day? He was watching. He was waiting. Think about the life of a Christian like that. Now, we too, we look forward to Jesus coming. But he's already come the first time. He's promised to come back a second time. And it's been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, every believer one day will be with Jesus. Whether we go to be with him before he returns or whether we're alive here on earth, which I hope I am, when Jesus returns. But we're called to be watching and waiting for that day. And as long as we have breath, and as long as we go to bed each night, wondering with anticipation, could tomorrow be the day? 
Could tomorrow be the day that Jesus comes? And until that day, we wait and we worship and we serve and we obey. You see, we can learn from this posture that Simeon had of hopeful waiting. And Christian, I ask you, is the return of Christ a part of your gospel? How often do you find comfort in the promise of the return of Jesus? How often are you encouraged by this truth? Each of us, to our shame, could say far too often we're more concerned about our own busy lives. Far too often we're thinking, well, Jesus, just come back a little bit later. Let me experience some good things in life. Let me graduate college. Let me get married. Let me, have, let me see the grandkids first. Let me have these experiences. And they reveal within us a need for us to be reminded of, of where true treasure is stored up in heaven with Jesus. Enjoy His daily gifts. Praise God for them. Embrace the daily gifts that He's given you. But fear God. Keep His commandments. Wait in hope and in devotion to the Lord until He fulfills His promises in Jesus. Simeon holds baby Jesus, the Messiah, in his hands, and his response is an outpouring of praise. He blessed God, praised him in verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples. Salvation is here. Just like you said, Lord, I can depart in peace, which is another way to say I'm ready to die. That's what he's saying there. God, God, you're faithful. You did just what you said you would. You made a promise and you kept it. I'm ready to be with you, Lord. No more waiting. No more watching. I've received what you've promised in Jesus Christ. Now, what Simeon praises God for in verse 32, it serves as a witness of what Jesus would do. This little baby that Simeon held, He came from heaven to be a light for all nations. Look at verse 32. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This little baby would bring salvation not only to Israel, but to the Gentiles, to the nations outside of Israel. In other words, he came to redeem and to save people from every nation. This man that was grabbing this baby and speaking praise to God over baby and Jesus led Mary and Joseph to marvel at what they had heard. They had already heard from the angel of the Lord who Jesus would be and what he would come to do. And here this was being confirmed as they walked into the temple complex there in Jerusalem. Yet what Simeon says next would give a clear and sober picture of the suffering that would come before glory. In verses 34 and 35, Simeon turns to Joseph and Mary to bless them. And look at his prophetic words here. His prophetic words prepare them for suffering that their son Jesus would face on the way to glory. This wouldn't be just a quick parade of triumph. It would be opposition along the way. Look at verse 34. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. You see, many wrongly expected the Messiah in that day. He would just come to kind of rise up against the Roman occupation and authority and that that were the real enemies of God and that's what would happen. That's what they were waiting for was political rescue. But, but Simeon wasn't waiting for that. He knew by the Holy Spirit that Jesus would come. There would actually be some that would rise in Israel, but others that would 
fall. Some in Israel would rise in salvation and receive Jesus just like Simeon did. Some would rise up in faith in Jesus and follow him, but others would fall in judgment. Others would fall in judgment and trip over the stone of stumbling there, the rock of offense, and reject God's salvation in Jesus. Rather than receive Jesus, they would oppose Him there in Israel. Many would. Jesus is the sign that is opposed there at the end of verse 34, a prophecy that revealed the suffering that Jesus would face. Simeon even says, Mary, you too are going to face suffering. What you read there in verses 35 in parentheses, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. That likely refers to the pain and the grief that Mary would have as she witnessed her son being rejected and killed on the cross. Jesus came as a light for the nations. Yet yet in his ministry, Jesus will also be a light that reveals the hearts of people, that reveals their, their secret thoughts. His coming, it revealed that while some in Israel were watching and waiting like Simeon, some would rise up, that others had no interest in the Messiah at all. And I wonder about you. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we are so glad that you came here this morning. Uh, coming and, and being in a church, especially when in the Gospel of Luke, I would invite you to come back next week. Lord, we'll be back in the Gospel of Luke. It's a great way for you to learn more about who God is and what He's done in Jesus. But you have to understand the Gospel of Jesus Christ, when the message is preached, it'll reveal what's in your heart. All of the members of our church have a testimony that by God's grace, they've put their faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe they weren't interested at first. Maybe it took years for them to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. But at some moment, God worked in their heart, and they rose up by the power of the Holy Spirit and put faith in Jesus Christ. I wonder how you respond this morning. Would you be one who who would rise up and want to know more about Jesus and trust in Him? Or would you be like one that's described here as falling, having no interest in Jesus? It's my prayer that you come to know Him. It's the prayer of our church. You'd come to love Him. And we'd love to talk with you more today about what it would look like to know Jesus and to believe in Him. Please talk with someone who brought you today. Talk with any of our pastors at the door, any of our members. The most important conversation you can have today is about who Jesus is and what it would look like for you to believe in Him. Well, a key part of Simeon's witness, this salvation is for the nations, and it would come through the suffering of the Christ. Now, along with Simeon, there's a second witness. That's what we read about in verses 36 through 38. Anna. Anna was an older, godly woman. We read that she is a a prophetess, a woman who speaks for God. And we see that she's advanced in years. We read in verse 36 that she, she lived with her husband of, for seven years of marriage. And it could be that that number 84 is pointing to the number of years she's been a widow, or it could refer to just her age at that time. Either way, what we see is that Anna was a widow for most of her adult life, which is a difficult and painful experience. That's a hardship. That's a trial. But notice that Anna's not bitter. She's hopeful. Notice Anna's not stuck in the past. No no doubt, hardship she's faced in the past. But look at where Anna's hope is pointed. Forward, 
forward-looking, looking to God's promises in Jesus. Look at what her life was devoted to at the end of verse 37. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Worshiping, fasting, praying, that's associated with waiting. What does your worship of God look like? When's the last time you fasted? What does your prayer life look like? If God answered your prayers from this past week, what would happen in your life? What would happen in the lives of others around you? You see, these activities of devotion are associated with waiting. And she was waiting for the redemption of Israel. Evidently, she heard Simeon's blessing over Jesus, and she joins in the chorus, giving thanks to God. And look at this. She began to speak of Jesus and His salvation to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. In other words, Anna sees Christ and helps others to see Him too. You see, hopeful devotion involves evangelism. Far too often, we, we disassociate these things wrongly. Well, here's my devotion, and here's why I'm like reading the Bible, and I'm praying, and then, then there's evangelism, which, if we're all honest, that can be intimidating sometimes. There's fear of rejection. We like to make excuses like, oh, that person's more extroverted than me, or oh, they know more about the Bible than me. But we can't separate that from our devotion. It's simply proclaiming the good news of Jesus to those around us, who He is and what He came to do, and calling people to trust in Him. You see, part of our waiting for the Lord involves us being witnesses of Christ, witnesses to a watching world. For Anna, her worship of Christ was connected to her witness of Christ, and so it should be for every Christian. Oakers Baptist Church, let's pray that we would urgently and joyfully and boldly share the good news of Jesus with those around us this week. Let's consider a third and final posture of waiting as we look at verses 40 through 52, a posture of looking to Jesus. Final posture, a posture of looking to Jesus. All right, so far, Jesus, eight days old. Here we jump in verse 40, then 12 years of age. The first 12 years of Jesus' life summarized here in verse 40, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, you see a similar statement down in verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, the doctrine of the incarnation is that God, the eternal God, the eternal Son of God, became a man. Jesus is therefore truly God and truly man. And we learn something in these next two verses about the humanity of Jesus. He was truly a man, so he didn't come out of the womb and just start talking and saying, thus saith the Lord, and telling parables. He didn't do that like at a day old. He, he was truly a man. And what we see here is that Jesus grew in the same way physically that you and I did. If you're a 12-year-old boy here today, in this particular scene, Jesus was like you. He was a 12-year-old boy. My son's about to turn 12 this spring. That was interesting for me to think. Jesus was a 12-year-old boy. He grew physically in a normal way. Jesus, like us, but at the same time, Jesus is so different from us. We see here twice in both those verses the favor of God 
was upon him. I mean, the grace of God upon him. Truly God and truly man, which is why those who came into contact with him marveled and were astonished. He was like them, but so different from them. Throughout his life, like us, he's a man, but the wind and the waves obey him. Who do the wind and waves obey? This guy must be God. They were astonished, like us, different from us. And what we read here in verse 40, it shows us this humanity of Jesus. As a child, he grew and became strong, which refers to physical growth. Jesus was filled with wisdom as a child, and we see down in verse 52, as he grew, he was increasing in wisdom, talking about intellectual growth, which is just the the mysterious nature of Jesus, truly God, truly man. He grew physically and intellectually, just like any young child does. He was truly human, meaning he had a human body and a human mind. He was truly man, yet he was sinless in all of his growth. And he never ceased to be God from conception to death on the cross. This is a bit of a mystery for us. Yet, throughout the Gospel of Luke, we see in Jesus both the divine nature and the human nature joined together in one person, Jesus, the God-man. And while Jesus grew and increased in wisdom, make no mistake about it, he always knew who he was. And he makes it clear here in this passage. Now, Jesus is truly man. We read in verses 41 through 51, this reveals also that Jesus is truly God, what we see in this final story here of the chapter. Here we read at the end of chapter 2 about another trip to Jerusalem, this time for the feast of Passover. In obedience to God's law, the people of Israel were to go to Jerusalem every year at the Passover where they celebrated God's salvation and deliverance of His people out of slavery in the land of Egypt redeeming them by the blood of the Passover lamb. I love it that later on in 1 Corinthians, Paul calls Christ, Christ, our Passover lamb. Here comes right here early on the Passover lamb, Jesus, the God-man, the lamb of God to celebrate Passover. Indeed, the one that the Passover pointed to here coming in obedience to celebrate Passover. Now, according to the Mosaic law, only the father was required to make this trip, but we see the whole family going here. And we also see this detail. Luke's big on details. Verse 42, Jesus was 12 years old on this particular trip. Now, it was at 13 that a Jewish boy would be counted as a man, subject to the law, a full member of the synagogue. Today, you may be familiar with this with a Jewish bar mitzvah. So he's 12 years old, right before he's counted as an adult. This was a type of training, taking a 12-year-old boy to learn the rituals of Passover so that one day he might take his family and lead his family in worship. That was the custom of what they were doing in that time. And that's the setting of this story. Again, obedience to God and going to Jerusalem leads to an important revelation of who Jesus is. We heard the story read earlier that after the Passover feast had concluded, Jesus' family and their travel group took off for home, but unbeknownst to them, Jesus wasn't with them. And if you've ever had the opportunity where you've lost your child, let's be honest, parents, you're not a bad mom or dad if that's happened. It's happened to all of us, even if just for a couple minutes in the grocery store. That is a frantic moment. 
And I'm the worst at like freaking out over that. I just am. Like I do. If I can't find them, I'm looking around wanting to see them. That's a frantic moment. Well, imagine like leaving Jerusalem, going back home, and they're in this big group. They travel with relatives. They travel in a big group. So it's understandable. They weren't just like keeping their eye on him the whole time and, and rightly assumed he's, he's with his cousins or he's hanging out somewhere. And they look and he's gone. Where is Jesus? And they turn back. They go back to Jerusalem. It says, after three days had passed, I think that's counting one day of travel away, one day of travel back, and then one day of searching for him there in Jerusalem. They find Jesus in the temple courts and notice what Jesus was doing there in verse 41, sitting among the teachers, sitting among the scribes, those teaching the law. He was sitting under the teaching of God's Word. Notice that he was listening to them and asking them questions. Certainly, I think we could presume his questions may well have served to test the knowledge of these scribes, but I think it's also clear from this context that Jesus was hungry for God's Word. He had a devotion to God's Word. He was committed to the Word of God and the will of God, and He did what Christians should do, listen to the Word, hunger for the Word. It's a great prayer for you to pray for your own soul and for others. God, give me a greater appetite and hunger for your word. We see in verse 47 that Jesus' questions and answers to the questions of the teachers caught the attention of the people there in the temple courts. He demonstrated a wisdom not only beyond his years, but a wisdom that surpassed the teachers in the temple. The crowd was amazed and So was Mary and Joseph for a moment, but then we see Mary's words in verse 48. Again, exasperation, understandable. She was tired, no doubt probably worried from searching for her son, and understandably she scolds him there in verse 48 saying, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And the response here, it's not Jesus being smart to his mom. He was sinless, remember. Jesus perfectly honored his mom and dad and all that he did. But this response to his mother is a famous statement that reveals who he is and what he came to do. In fact, these are the first words recorded of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, which tells us important detail. Verse 49, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? He's genuinely concerned. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Though his parents didn't understand these words at the time, Later on, after the cross and the resurrection, this would all be clear. This was treasured up in Mary's heart. But his first words recorded in Luke, coming from the mouth of a 12-year-old boy, are concerned with revealing who he is as the Son of God. By Jesus referring to God as my Father, he revealed his unique relationship to God. That from eternity past, God the Son always had fellowship with God the Father. And even while he was a little boy, Jesus knew exactly who he was. He's the Son of God. Joseph is his earthly father, but make no mistake, God is his true father. He submitted to his earthly father. We even see in verse 51, he goes back with him to Nazareth. But his true father is the one he ultimately must obey. His response shows he's exactly where he's supposed to be in his father's house, doing his father's will. Notice the the word must in verse 49. I must be in my father's house. 
while he was a little boy, he knew he must do the will of God, his father. His life was to do the will of the one who sent him and to finish his work. He was clear on that at 12. And we'll see the story pick up 18 years later where he starts his public ministry at 30, ready to finish the work of God. Obedience even to the point of death on the cross. And while Jesus' relationship to God is unique to him as the Son of God, we also see the gift of adoption in the New Testament that all who put their faith in Jesus are adopted into God's family. We're all adopted into his family and know him as our Father. That's how Jesus taught his disciples to be our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. And just like Jesus, we must be concerned about doing God's will. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Yeah, I grew up in the KJV in the 80s. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those who trust in Jesus live like him, concerned with his word, concerned with his will, a passion to honor God and to obey him. This passage in Luke shows us the Christian life is one of watching and waiting, obeying, worshiping, serving, trusting, delighting in the Lord, confessing sin to Him, repenting and continuing to believe. Our delight is in the Lord, and our future is sure. One day we will see the face of Jesus. But you're alive here this morning. Jesus is not done with you yet. He's not returned yet. I hope He returns today, but He's not returned yet. Could today be the day? Could tomorrow be the day? Ask God to lead you away from the cynicism of this present world. Our faith in Jesus helps us to think about these, these promises found in God that help us not just to have this worldly optimism, but a true hope that's found in the person of Jesus. And if you have that hope, it'll change everything about you. It'll change the way that you relate to those in your home when you leave here today. It'll change the way you think about your work tomorrow. Whatever it is that God's assigned you in this present season of life, it'll change the way you think about your very life. Your life is not found in what you see in the mirror or what you can see around you. If you put your faith in Jesus, your life is found in Jesus. Ask Him for help to wait and to watch, to pray and to worship. Ask Him to grow in faith and hope and love. Ask him for help to wait for him. Let's do that now. Father in heaven, we need your help. We wait for the wrong things so often. We look to ourselves and to others around us far too often. We struggle to trust you. We know your word, Lord, and we often struggle to believe it. Lord, we ask for your help, that you'd strengthen us in our faith, that even as we're aware of our weaknesses and our failures, our sin, Lord, that we would be reminded of your ongoing care for us, your ongoing presence for those who believe in Jesus, that Christ is with us always. Lord, help us to be those who look more and more to Jesus and wait for Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.